0: How are you doing this morning? So, you know, everyone who's in on the secret knows that the key to getting the Holy Spirit in the house is to have good drumming. That's just how it is. And despite the fact that we lacked that this morning, you guys made up for the difference, and so the presence of God is here, and that's what counts. Uh, Hey, um, did you have a good time with Bruxy last week? (laughs) That guy... He's just one big bucket of sexy, isn't he? He's just one... <laughs> that guy's such a card. Uh, when he came in on Friday, he and I went out, went to see Superman together because we like action films and our wives don't, so we, we, we just have our own little date. And then we went out and talked some theology, and he's just a blast. I just love that guy. Um, had a great time up at the meeting house. We did this pulpit swap thing. And there's no congregation that I know of that is just so much uh, like us. It's core convictions, beliefs... Uh, even the culture is just very, very similar, and uh, it's a very cool relationship we have. So we're uh, getting together almost on a weekly basis, uh, Paul, Eddie, and I, and Tim Day, uh, who's the senior pastor of the Meeting House in Bruxy, and with some others, and we're strategizing about how we can together work uh, to, uh, to really help be a catalyst for uh, and a network for this rising revolution that's going on all around the globe. As, as Christendom, that church militant and triumphant, is crumbling to the ground, which is a good thing. Out of the rubble is rising people who get the vision of a, the humble Jesus-looking God and the humble Jesus-looking kingdom, and and uh, yes, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And and they get that uh, how different that is from uh, what has the religion that has passed uh, for under the name of Christendom for so long. That church militant triumphant that thought was going to conquer the world and all of that. And it's a beautiful thing. So we're together uh, asking the question, how can we uh, pool our resources and work with others to, to see this thing turn into movement? It's exciting times, exciting things going on. So Bruxy asked the question, what is love? In fact, the, the, the first person I asked about what did Bruxy talk about, uh, the person said, well, he told us to go out and make love to as many people as possible. That's <laughs> like, yeah, great. Yeah, you heard that. Hopefully he did not obey that, if you mean by making love what the culture often makes of it. But you know, the, the question about what is love is, is, a, is a crucial question, as we're in this kind of series on, on love. Um, it's, uh, it's the all-important thing, because there's such a variety of definitions out there. People are asking this question. In fact, do you realize how many songs are, are about that theme? I mean, if you ever start to listen to some of the lyrics of, of uh, some pop songs... First of all, uh, you'll probably be offended if you actually listen to the lyrics. But secondly, you'll find out there's just a lot of confusion about what love is. Uh, so let's see uh, who can tell me who uh, um, sang this song. Okay, uh, this is about what love is. Uh, it's it's uh, how's it go here? I always forget this first one. Oh, how how will I know if he really loves me? I say a prayer. Who is it? Whitney Houston. Excellent. How about this one? I wanna know what love is. I want foreigner. See, the quicker you guess it, the less I'll sing. So it's, you're, you're very motivated. Uh, okay, this one's a little harder. This one's a little harder. Uh, it's the 90s. Uh, it goes, uh, um, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Baby, don't hurt me no more. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Who is it? Hanway, I right. Excellent. 92. That one came in. Uh, let see here. Um, okay, who can... I guess what band did this? And what was the name? And this is go back goes back away. Uh, you have to be uh, older than the rest of us young folks here to know this one. Uh, but it's uh, um, is it in his eyes? Oh no, that's not the way. Is it in his eyes? Oh no, you'll be deceived if you want to know if he loves you. So it's in the Yes, That's where it is. Who did it? No, the f- first band that did it. It was no. It was the nylons. What a dumb name! <laughs> nylons. With the next is the spandex, the girders. The... I, and what was the name of the song? I, I, I will give. I, I offered five bucks to the person last service who got this, and uh, it's a Shoop Shoop song. Well, I, 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 there you go. So here's your money. You come up after the service. I I, I, I will give. I, it's called the Shoop Shoop song. And it's not that any of the lyrics have to do with shoop-shoop, but in the background, they're going shoop-shoop-shoop-shoop. So they named it the shoop-shoop song. The guy was high when he named it. That was ridiculous. That's about love. Okay, one last one. Who did this? Ah, uh, la, rumba, rumba. Ah, da, I carumba. Ah, da, 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 da. I want your romance. Lady Gaga. I want your love and I want your disease. I want your everything as long as you please. I want your love, 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 love. I want your love. What is that about? I want your love and I want your revenge. You and me can make a bad romance. Whoa, whoa. She thinks love is revenge. I want your love and your love is revenge. As well as you would have a bad romance if that's your idea what love is. It just shows you how screwed up, how utterly screwed up, the culture is about love. Fortunately, the Bible clarifies things greatly for us, as we've been seeing here, because it gives us, for a definition of love, not something abstract, certainly not a feeling or a wishy-washy hormonal reaction. It points us to the cross. So John says, here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so also we should lay down our life for one another. That's how you know what love is. Notice that the love is not just knowing about something, but doing something. You'll learn what love is as you do it, as you lay down your life for one another. You, you, you grow in the understanding of what love is. But love is about God setting aside his glory, becoming a human being, and then taking on our sin and our curse on Calvary, uh, paying an unsurpassable price for a people who could deserve it less, ascribing to us unsurpassable and unconditional worth when, when we were yet enemies, That's what love is. That's the kind of love that God is. When the Bible says God is love, it's referring to this kind of love. That's the definition. God throughout eternity is this kind of love. It's an enemy-embracing, other-oriented, self-sacrificial, non-violent love. That's God's nature. And when God reigns over a life, that's the kingdom of God, the the king's dome. Where God reigns, it will always look like that. That's God's character. And to the degree that God is over our lives individually and collectively, we will individually and collectively look like that. We'll be growing in that direction. Learning how to ascribe unsurpassable and unconditional worth to every other human being on the planet, regardless of what their attitude is towards us, regardless of what they think about us, whether they, they can benefit us or whether they're threatening us. Our our stance is to be the stance of Jesus. Where we ascribe worth to them And we, we manifest that worth By what we're willing to sacrifice for them Instead of sacrificing them We sacrifice ourselves for them That's love It's the kind of love that the world is not capable of uh, To get this kind of love You only get it by surrendering your life to Abba Father And letting him download his character into your life It's uh, called it the Holy Spirit when you, you, You're born from above And you adopt the DNA of Abba Father We can't crank this one out on our own our self-preservationist instincts, our fallen nature is too strong to think we can ever just will our way into this. It only comes from being submitted to Abba Father, which is why it's a, it is the defining characteristic of the kingdom. This is, this is the kind of love where Jesus says, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You'll, you'll understand and recognize the true child of the Father when they love in the way that only the Father can love. Other kind of love, everyone else is capable of, but this kind of love is distinctive. It's the trademark of the kingdom. And we've seen in this series that we've done uh, on, uh, the, on love that there is nothing more important than this. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 goes so far as to say that it doesn't matter how great your faith is or how right your beliefs are. It doesn't matter if, if you have all knowledge and understand all mysteries and can prophesy and speak in tongues and move mountains. If it's not motivated by love, and it doesn't, isn't done for the purpose of furthering love, love that looks like Calvary, it's altogether worthless. This is the ultimate deal breaker. Now, If you have this kind of love in your life, well then your beliefs and other things take on value. But if you don't have this kind of love, then everything else loses all value. It's worthless. It's religious noise, Paul says, clinging symbols. Um, this is the ultimate test of orthodoxy. It would be far better to be wrong about the Trinity and the Incarnation and the inspiration of the Bible and a hundred other things than to lack love. Because to lack love is the greatest heresy. Oh, how we need to get this, this down. The greatest heresy is to lack this kind of love. Because this, this destroys everything else. Um, and, and, and so this is the center of the kingdom. This is the all or nothing of the kingdom. The foundation of the kingdom. The essence of the kingdom. We could not possibly talk about anything that would be more important than this. Living in this kind of love. So what keeps us from living in this kind of love? Ultimately, it's that we're not sufficiently surrendered to Abba Father. We're still Lord of our own life. And that's going to block the flow of this love. But at the root of the whole thing we've seen here, it's something that people wouldn't ordinarily expect. It's hardly ever taught in the church, and yet it's absolutely foundational if we're going to live in this kind of love. And we've seen that it goes back to the original sin of the Bible, the rebellion in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. Uh, It has to do with eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It has to do with judgment. So in the garden, at the center of the garden, showing that everything revolves around this, there's a provision and a prohibition. The The provision is God's tree of life. Trust God for life. And the prohibition is God's loving, no trespassing sign, where he says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, don't try to judge like only I can judge. Because to the degree that we judge, we do not love. Judgment, for us, is the antithesis, the opposite of love. Whereas love is about ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself, judgment is about ascribing worth to yourself at cost to another. And every act of judgment, whether, even if it's only thought, every little gossip whisper in our brain, to that degree breaks the flow of love into us and through us. Think about it. Think of any person that you don't love. Maybe you have an absolute hostile feeling towards them, or maybe you're just apathetic towards them, but any person you don't love, why is it that you would withhold love from them? And the answer, if you're honest with yourself and can become self-aware and trace it back far enough, the answer is a judgment. You've decided that they don't deserve it. The trouble is, is that God has decided that they do deserve love, as is evidenced by Calvary. So every act of withholding love is rebellion against God. We're saying, God, you are wrong in saying that that person has unsurpassable worth and that I should be willing to die for them uh, because I judge that they don't deserve my love. And if I need to, I'll act as violent as I want against them and be justified in doing it. This is the essence of our fall. This is the essence of the rebellion because it displaces love at the center. And so if we're going to be free to love, we've got to be a people who learn to be free of all judgment, leaving all judgment to God. Now, that's just against our fallen nature. You have to crucify yourself to do this. Uh, because we are addicted, all of us, to eating it from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, it, 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 it pollutes our atmosphere. We absorb it in the culture. It's, it's just intrinsic to who we are in, as fallen people. Uh, to live in the kind of love that God calls us to live in, we've got to die to ourselves and therefore die to any right we think we might have, to have any opinion about anybody other than the one that God has. And God's opinion is expressed on Calvary when he dies for them. Our job is to agree with God about that with regard to every single person on the planet. Now there's a, there's a place, an important place, and I'll, I'll end this series next week by talking about this, um, that there's a place for discernment, where we, do, we don't separate people, but we separate things. Ultimately, there's a kind of judgment about what is true and false, and we need that. What is real, what's not real. What's helpful, what's not helpful. What's consistent with the kingdom, what's not consistent. consistent. And we all need people in our life to help us discern this. If we're going to swim upstream in the culture and and be distinct ambassadors of the kingdom of God, I need people who know me well enough that I've invited in on my life to help me discern areas where I might be blind. And areas where maybe I'm backsliding, where I'm, I'm not living consistent with the kingdom. And I know when they point these things out, when they discern things for me, when they ask questions like, Greg, are, are you getting t- too obsessive with your work or your writing? Are you spending enough time with, with, with Shelley?" I know they're not judging me. I know these folks, they love me. And that's why they're confronting stuff. We all need that. But that's gonna be a, a fairly small cadre of people who can speak into our life. Outside of that, if a person hasn't invited you in, you only are allowed to have one opinion about them. And that is, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, Jesus, I resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It has to be a resolve. You've got to determine it. I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, Because the inclination of your fallen, judgment-addicted brain, the inclination is going to be to think you know a lot of other things about them. We have this omniscience mechanism we think we know. We think we can, we can discern how good and evil apply to people's lives. And we don't. We have to leave all of that to God and then just unconditionally ascribe worth to folks. Now here's the thing. The reason why we judge ultimately is to feed ourselves, right? When we rebel against God, we're separated from God and, and yet we're made for the life that, that only he can offer us. We're, we're, we're made to feel like our life is important and significant and worthwhile and, and secure and loved. It, we, we, it's a non-negotiable need. In the human heart. But if we're not getting that from God, then we've got to try to get it from other sources. This is, this is all idolatry. Some folks today get their needs met, or try to get their needs met, in secular ways. This is the, kind of, the carnal, crass way of, of, of getting life in Western culture where you, you feel like you're fully alive because of how rich you are, how powerful you are, the kind of car you drive, how sexy you are, how much talent you have, how big your house is, and yada, 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 yada. And that's just kind of the carnal way of getting life. But there's another way of being a false way of getting life that is, I think, more pernicious because it's more subtle. It is more common throughout history and it's the kind of false way of getting life that brings a different version of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a different package of judgments, but it's the greatest temptation to kingdom people and that's what I want to speak about here for the rest of this message. Uh, It is the religious way of getting life. It's all the more demonic because it looks good. People who are serious about God aren't usually too inclined to try to get life from how sexy they are or all the other kinds of secular ways of getting life, but we can be very tempted. In fact, I'm sure we are all tempted by the religious way of getting life. If you've come out of a Christian background, you've been conditioned in this. So I want to just put a spotlight on this and, and, and try to help, help us see it in our own life so we can begin to get out of it and be free of it. So I'm entitling this message, Sociopathic Religion, because we'll see here that that religion uh, is in a real real true sense, sociopathic. Uh, And uh, that metaphor will help us kind of get in on on, on the kind of judgment that, why, why it is that Christians and religious people in general are so conditioned to judge and feel righteous for doing so, right? Sociopathic religion. To get at this, I want to look at the chapter right after the chapter on the fall in the Bible. And if you have questions as I'm going through this I'm still planning on having 10 minutes or so uh, To answer them So d- dial it into uh, that number And we'll get to as many of those as possible And some of the ones we don't get to I'll try to put an addendum on the message uh, uh, Later on so when you download it you can get the, uh, the, I'll answer some of the questions that way um, Genesis 4 The chapter of the narrative Right after the narrative on the fall It's the story of Cain and Abel Cain and Abel were the first two children of Adam and Eve According to the Genesis story and here's what it says. It's a fascinating passage. It says, Now Abel kept flocks. For he was put in charge of the animals. And Cain worked the soil. He was the farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel, Abel also brought an offering. Fat portions with some of his firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, and you've got to know this, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Clearly, Cain did not rule over it because the next verse says now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the story goes on from there. The Lord confronts Cain. Uh, we are seeing here a working out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Kicked out of paradise, barred from the tree of life. Here's what begins to happen to humanity. Um, now I've heard messages on this passage and probably some of you have too where uh, preachers try to explain why God preferred Abel's sacrifice over Cain's. Uh, remember one passage, one when, when sermon, uh, the guy was saying, well, see, Abel brought his firstborn, as his, his very best to God. So God was pleased with the sacrifice. But Cain didn't bring his, his very best. Um, but see, there's nothing about that in the text. Read the text. There's nothing about that. It's just that... Abel uh, was working with the flocks and Cain was working with the soul and they both brought what they had to offer. The text doesn't say that God had some preference by the nature of the sacrifice. Rather, what the Lord does here, he says to Cain, um, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? The criteria was that it was living right. It was just about right. It wasn't about the sacrifices at all. Apparently Abel was living right and that's why God accepted, the, looked on his sacrifice with favor, But with Cain, Cain apparently wasn't living right. That's why the Lord warns him about sin crouching at the door. And that's why his offering wasn't accepted. In fact, if you read the passage carefully, and I actually began to notice this last week when I was talking with Brooks. We went out to eat and we got talking about this stuff. And something he said just kind of inspired this message I'm giving right now. But uh, here's the thing. There's nothing in the passage that suggests that God commanded them to make an offering. It doesn't say God... Anywhere commanded them to make a sacrifice. This was something that Cain and Abel just decided to do. It wasn't God's idea. See, there's something in, in the, the human heart when we're separated from God. If we don't try to meet our need in a secular way, well, then we try to meet it in a religious way, which means we're, we're concerned about God. And um, uh, when you're concerned about God and you feel this gulf, this emptiness... The natural instinct is to try to do something to repair it, to cross the gulf. This is the origin of religion. Where humans say there's something we can offer, something we can sacrifice, something we can do that will please the God or or appease the gods. Read the history, study the history of religion, it's all about this. Uh, What are the things we need to believe and the things we need to do and the things we need to sacrifice in order to get God to like us or the gods to like us? And so Cain and Abel, I think just sensing this separation from God, they come up with the idea of of sacrifices. It wasn't God's idea. You find God acquiescing to this human need for sacrifices in the Old Testament. Read the book of Leviticus, and some of it's pretty gory. I mean, especially if you're an animal lover like I am, some of it's really offensive. It was, you know, they get instructions about how many times you got to twist the pigeon's head before you pop it off and sprinkle blood on you and kill this goat and that calf and this lamb, and everyone's getting slaughtered and all that stuff. And it looks like you get this impression that Yahweh's sort of this bloodthirsty God who's like, yes, I want more animal sacrifice to me. But actually, that, that's God. Just act, it's humans who need that sacrifice, not God. And they talk about it being a sweet aroma to God, like he's up there going, "Mm, I do love the smell of that, that that sacrifice pigeon. Uh, But we know from the New Testament that God's not like that. In fact, Hebrews tells us that that stuff didn't accomplish anything. It didn't remit sin or anything like that. God doesn't need to spill blood in order to forgive. Humans, for their assurance, need this. So God says, okay, I'll go along with it, just like he does with kings. You know, he doesn't want the Israelites to have a king, but the Israelites cry, we want a king, we don't feel secure without a king. So God goes along with the program. And once he stoops to go along with the program, well, you read the narrative after that, and it looks like he's really in favor of kings, and he blesses the kings, and and all this kind of of stuff. But it wasn't his idea to start with. Same thing is true of the sacrifice. This is just the thing that human religion does. Human religion, it tries to bridge the gap between us and God by things that we do. Things that we believe and things that we offer and sacrifices that we make. Uh, But it's not... It's interesting that the first act of violence... Notice this. The first act of violence recorded in Scripture is religiously motivated. And the, 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 the reality is that religion has been one of the main, probably the dominant motivator for violence throughout history. More blood has been shed... For religious reasons than any other reason. You see, religion is the opposite of the kingdom here. Religion is about us trying to find a way to get to God. The Tower of Babel kind of thing. Uh, We've got to find a way to cross this this gulf on our own. But the kingdom is the exact opposite of that. It's about people who despair of ever being able to cross that bridge on our own. We know that we can't do that. And so we just throw ourselves before God in his mercy and trust God's character enough to come to us. And so the kingdom is about God coming to us. And when God comes to us, God's the one who dies. But when we try to get to God, we end up killing other people. What Cain essentially does is he kills the competition. He's looking at this thing. God's just saying, hey, live right and you're going to be okay. But Cain is viewing this as religious competition. And he's got to kill the competition. It's this kind of king of the hill. That's what always happens with idolatry. Who's king of the hill? Uh, Whose religion is best? Whose beliefs are best? Whose sacrifices are best? And there's always been an impulse on the part of religion uh, to to control and, if need be, kill the competition. Because we get life from believing that we alone are the right ones, that we alone are the special people, the holy people, the chosen people, uh, who have the right beliefs and the right sacrifices and things of that sort religion is the opposite of the kingdom I get asked sometimes on planes especially if if someone sees me reading a a theology book or the bible or something they'll say oh oh, oh, are you a religious person and my answer is always heck no no way Uh, and it gives me an opportunity to explain the the massive difference between religion and the kingdom they're two very different things three years ago I got invited to debate uh, Christopher Hitchens anybody you know who Christopher Hitchens is? Or was. He died this last year. But he's one of these uh, real outspoken atheists. A real critic of uh, Christianity and wrote the book, God is Not Great. Um, And and so I was invited to this debate. Now, I was initially uh, inclined to accept it. I thought this would be fun and uh, I would enjoy this. But what's the topic about? And it was put on by the BBC uh, channel and and it was going to be on... The question was, is religion good or bad for society? And so I said, well, I'd love to debate Christopher Hitchens, but uh, on that topic, it's going to be a pretty boring debate. (laughs) Because I suspect we're going to be pretty much arguing along the same lines. I mean, I I don't think we're worse off because of religion, but we're not better off. All religions, including the Christian religion, they do some good and they do some bad, but there's always an inclination towards violence for them, and and I, I think religion is the problem, not the solution. The kingdom of God is not a religion. The kingdom of God is just a bunch of people who come to know the true God through Jesus Christ and are being transformed by his love being poured into their life. That's it. There's nothing religious about it because we're not coming up with a system of things to try to appease the God. No, we trust that that's already been taken care of. The cross is the death of religion. If you understand what the cross is all about. Amen. Amen. That's why I wrote a book, Repenting of Religion, and Bruxy wrote a book, The End of Religion, and we just are not fans of religion. It's, it's not a good thing. Now, here's, the, here's what I want us to see. Because we've all been, at least many of us at least, have been affected by this religious virus, this religious way of, of getting life. And it's the main obstacle uh, to the kingdom, the kind of idolatry we're most tempted with. Um, I, 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 I Think about it in terms of uh, sociopathology. This is the analogy I use in uh, uh, repenting of religion. A sociopath... Most of you know what a sociopath is. They can be very scary people because they're people who, either for biological reasons or the reasons of their upbringing, whatever it is, they lack a capacity to experience genuine human emotion. They lack a capacity to empathize with people, to enter into the life of another, to see the world from another's perspective. So, A true sociopath lives in a world of objects where people are just kind of cut up boards. And, and it's a world of objects that they use to meet their own needs. A true sociopath has no conscience. They they don't they, they can't conceive of others experiencing pain. So they're profoundly narcissistic. Um, I, I, a sociopath is someone because they don't have the reality of human emotions. They become all they know is behavior behavior that can be used to get things. And so the meaning of the word love for a a sociopath is simply the set of behaviors that get associated with the word love. They don't know the reality of love. Or the word compassion. The meaning of that for a sociopath is simply a set of behaviors um, uh, because they don't have the reality of, of feeling compassion. And so sociopaths can be incredibly brilliant at mimicking behavior, parroting behavior. Because that's all they know. That's their whole reality. And they don't even know that they're missing anything. This is just what they think the... The word means. I, I, I worked with a young lady at a juvenile home when I was in seminary, uh, who was diagnosed as having being a sociopath, and it was uh, it, it was uncanny how she could she could in one moment seem so loving and kind and, and empathetic, I, even crying as she's in solidarity with a friend of hers whose boyfriend just just dumped her, and she's crying and oh, this is terrible, this is terrible. But she was doing it to get something. And as soon as she got the favor that she wanted, she turned against this girl and just got vicious on her, ripping her up, calling her all sorts of names, saying the boyfriend was right to dump you. And in fact, it turned out that she had, this girl who's a sociopath, slept with the boyfriend the night before and, and that's the reason why he dumped her, this other girl. And, went and totally just destroyed this girl. Going from this appearance of, of, of compassion to this demonic cruelty, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a second. Because it was all about the behavior. Now, that is, I think, a good analogy for what religion does. Here's why. We are in this fallen world, separated from God. Our nature is really on a spiritual level to be sociopathic. We're spiritual sociopaths. We are dead in sin, Ephesians 2 tells us. Dead. We lack the capacity in and of ourselves To experience and be transformed by the real life of God. We need God, the Holy Spirit, working by His grace in our hearts to begin to enliven us, to bring us back, to to wake us up, to give us some of that reality. But in and of ourselves, left to ourselves, we don't have that. Now, if we're, what we do sense is that we're empty, we sense something's wrong. And so we try to fill that void in our life. We want to feel fully alive. And if the way that we're going to do that is through religion, then what, what happens is we study behavior. We, we live in the question. And this is the version of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil we're going to eat from. The question is, is, is uh, what beliefs do I need to have? What behaviors do I need to have? What sacrifices do I need to have in order to bridge the gap between me and God? We're trying to get to God on the basis of the right things we believe, and the right things we do, and, and all the rest. But that's all we know is exterior. We don't have the genuine life. These things aren't done to express a life we have. Rather, these things are done in place of the life we don't have. Oh, that came out just right. These things aren't done to express a life that we do have. They're done in place of the life that we don't have. Yes. So we're not getting life from God. We're getting life by what we think we know about God and and the right things we do for God and and all the rest. But like a sociopath, what that does, this is why religion is so damaging, it conditions us. To be hyper vigilant on, on, on behaviors, on, uh, um, on who's doing it right, who's doing it wrong, who agrees with us, who doesn't agree with us. I, I use the analogy in the book Repenting of Religion of a, of, of a sociopath who wants to be a good husband. Um, he gets life from looking like a good husband. Now, he doesn't have the reality of what a good husband has, he doesn't genuinely know how to love and have compassion uh, for his spouse. But he, for whatever reasons, he decides he wants to be a good husband. It's a good analogy because the kingdom is a marriage relationship with, with, with Abba Father, right? And so this guy, since he doesn't have the reality, he'll study, he'll study the behavior of good husbands. He'll read books on what it is to be a good husband. He'll notice that, that when the wife is, is, is sad, the good husband comforts the wife. And when the wife is worried, the good husband has encouraging words. And, and when the, the wife is angry, the good husband apologizes, even if he doesn't know what she's angry about, because that's what good husbands do. And he'll just observe these behaviors. Take notes. He'll become an expert. And then he'll become, because this is his whole life, he'll become vigilant and noticing how, how other people don't uh, match up to the criteria of a good husband. And he'll feed off the contrast because he thinks he is a good husband because he does all the right behavior. Um, And and so he's been trained to notice and observe carefully all the things that people do right and all the things they do wrong. He may even have an impulse, since this is his life, he gets worth from this, to to try to legislate that because he's the expert. He believes he knows it best. And and thinking that behavior can make a, a good husband, not realizing that it takes more than that, He might even try to legislate that, to control that. Let's pass laws that forbid husbands to have behavior that's anything less than perfect. Thinking that you could create a good husband just by having a law that prevents them from ever acting like a bad husband. Not realizing that it requires a whole lot more than that. This guy, this sociopathic husband could look very good on the outside. A lot of women would look at at, at his wife and say, man, what a lucky woman she is. He just is so compassionate, kind, loving. Oh, how sweet. Harry, why can't you be like that? but see the wife I submit to you would, before too long come to know the difference uh, think about what it would be like to be married to a person like this in some ways he'd be too perfect he says all the right things but he seems to is too rote, it's too predictable it's too formulaic it's too robotic and, and it never varies there's not any kind of spontaneity there's no creativity and then if there's situations that happen that he hasn't studied he doesn't know what to do you know, he's at a, a complete loss she so would begin to sense that there's something lacking here What's lacking is the reality that other husbands have. Uh, and they involve get in their behavior as a way of expressing the reality. This guy lacks the reality, so he's just trying to leverage everything on the behavior. This is religion, folks. This is religion. And so it conditions us. If we're in a sociopathic form of Christianity, where we're not getting all of our life and worth from God, but instead we're getting it from how, how right we are before God, or how, how good we are, or our belief system, or whatever then we will be conditioned to be judgers. We'll be conditioned to be observing how some people agree with us, some don't. And some people do unbiblical things, and, 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 and some do. And, 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 and instead of maximizing our sin and minimizing others like Jesus tells us to do, we'll minimize our own sin and maximize others. Because this is a, a form of life for us. And if you're involved in sociopathic Christianity, then there'll be an impulse not just to judge but to rule. Because you're the expert. Church has done this throughout history. We're the ones who know uh, the the right things to do for God, and so we'll try to legislate it and pass laws on it, thinking that you can create a godly society just by having the right laws. There's always been an impulse on the side of religious people to control society. Have you noticed that? And They, they want to control because they're the righteous people, and see, they don't realize that the thing that's needful is something that a law can't give, and a bunch of rules and behaviors can't can't give. Um, they don't realize that Jesus Christ came not for a good-looking bride, but for a real bride. He came not just for a bride who does says the right things, believes the right things, but for a bride who's got a reality, a reality there. And, and yeah, the bride maybe is screwed up in a lot of ways. We are. And it's got a lot of mud on her. We are. And, and, and falls fat on her face a lot of times. We do. But at least this bride's got a reality and is moving in the right direction. He came for a real bride, praise God. Not for a sociopathic bride who just looks good on the outside. To live in the kind of kingdom love that we're called to live in, folks, we've got to get free, completely free of all sociopathic religion. Uh, there are folks who have, I've, I've been told this, coming out of their sociopathic background, they were conditioned to feel guilty if they ever loved anyone for free. They, were, they felt guilty if they had friends who had lifestyles that they were conditioned to notice, because we're conditioned to notice some but not others. And, they, and with these friends, they felt guilty unless they point out their disagreement with them. They feel guilty if they love the way Jesus loved. If they're hanging out and you don't point out their sins, like that's what Jesus did at parties when he was with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. No, he just loved them. Uh, The religion blocks the flow of the kingdom. And if we're ever going to live in the kind of kingdom love that we're, we're called to live in, we've got to get all of our life from God, renounce getting life from how our beliefs and our behaviors and every other kind of idolatry, get all of our life from God, and then leave all judgment to God, all of it. Every ounce of judgment we leave to God. We trust God's character to give us life, and we trust God to run the world. We, we, we trust the provision, and we honor the prohibition. Uh, we can only love like this insofar as we're committed to leaving all judgment to God. Uh, one more verse, and then we'll get to questions. Paul says it like this. I love this passage. He says, do not take revenge. Ek dikeo. Decao is the, the word for justice or righteousness. And ek dekeo there, therefore means taking righteousness for yourself. You get to define what is righteous. That's what, it, what revenge is all about. You take justice into your own hands. It's eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Paul says, do not take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath. So when you're judging another person, you're crowding God out. That's God's job. I trust that at the end of time, he'll take care of, he'll, he'll right all wrongs. Uh, but when you're, when, you're, when you're exacting vengeance here now, you're playing God. You're not leaving any room for God. You're taking over his job. It's exactly what James says in James 4, 11 and 12. And then he says, for it's written, remember this Old Testament verse, it is mine to avenge. Same word there, cases. It's mine to avenge. Only God can take justice and righteousness for himself. I will repay. You don't need to. On the contrary, note that, on the contrary, what it is to do the opposite of this, the judgment is over here. We take vengeance for ourselves, Whether it's just in our thought or our word or our deed, But the opposite of that is then to feed your enemy when they're hungry and give them something to drink when they're thirsty. And in doing that, you'll heap burning coals on their head. That's just a a Jewish idiom for bringing uh, conviction on somebody. When you respond to evil with love, uh, you open the door for them to experience some conviction um, and uh, possibly turn them into a friend and change them. That's why Paul says love binds everything together in harmony. But if you respond evil with evil, retaliate the whole tit-for-tat, mindless... Cycle of violence game that's been going on throughout history. Well, then you just lock people into their stance against you. you just, in their mind, you just justified their, their, their animosity towards you. And so then Paul says, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. The only way to keep from being defined by the evil of the world is to opt out of the game. Opt out of the judgment game. Opt uh, out of the retaliation game, the revenge game. And you just live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. To live in love, we've got to leave all judgment to God. We can discern, we must discern, but never judge. Our only opinion of every person we see is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Resolve to have that attitude. And watch how it frees you. It is so freeing. It is kingdom joy, it's kingdom love, it's kingdom life, it's kingdom peace, it's kingdom everything. It's exhausting to play God, you guys. It's exhausting. We don't realize how much life it sucks out of us when we're trying to play God in our brain. But just to be free to love. You just be free to love. And, and if you do this, you'll, you'll sniff out the, the sociopathological religion because there'll be a party that feels guilty. Like, oh maybe I'm not standing up for righteousness because I'm not judging them. Ah, it's good if you sense that. Know that you're going in the right direction if you sense that. Uh, and just set that aside and said no, my job, that's God's job. My job is to love like Calvary. What questions do we have? Ah, God's response to Cain leads me to think God's concerned with the right actions more than loving me in the midst of my faults. Seems like God never affirmed Cain in this story. Can you comment on that? Mm, let me, interesting here. Well, look, at, um, you could read it like this, like he's only interested in, in actions. God's a behavioralist. In fact, I had a conversation with somebody after the last service that, that led to this, this observation. If you come from a background, a behavioralistic background where God is a behavioralist and loves you based on your actions, which is just a religious background, a, a social Pathic background You'll be conditioned to read the Bible this way A lot of folks As you read the Bible What will jump out at you is uh, That's just the grid Out of which you interpret things So you could read it that way But you could also read it this way That the kind of right living That that God is looking for Is the kind of right living That comes out of a right relationship If you do what is right Um, And one of the things to do what is right Is to be rightly related to me The way Abel was I don't know, we're not told. It's not the point of the story that let us in on all the details of what's going on in Abel's mind versus Cain's mind. Uh, but knowing what we know about God from the New Testament, especially from Jesus Christ, we know that, that the, the main right thing to do, the central, the foundational right thing to do is to be right really, related with God because everything else flows out of that. Uh, the main point here, though, is, is, is that he's it's, it's, it's just saying live right. It's not about your sacrifices. It's about just living right. And... Um, um, and that, that's what uh, distinguishes Cain from Abel. Uh, the only other thing I'll say here is this. You might get that impression from Genesis 4. You might get it from other passages in the Bible as well. That God is just interested in behavior. Uh, but here's where it's all important to decide how you're going to read the Bible. And we have to remember that Jesus says that he is the point of all Scripture. All Scripture bears witness to me. John 5, uh, Luke 24 and uh, and so we read all Scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ. We know who the true God is in Jesus Christ. So now we we read everything else in Scripture through that lens, and um, and we'll see that sometimes biblical authors they didn't have the full revelation that you have, and and so you'll see sometimes their penultimate understanding of God reflected in, in, in a passage. But we'll read everything through the lens of, of Christ. Excellent. Uh, let's, let's take another one. Am I judging someone if I take them to court? That's a good, that's a very good. It's a very very good uh, question. Well, you're at least you're at least bringing them into the place where they could be judged. Uh, here's what makes this a, a complex thing. I'm hesitant to give a definitive on this. I, 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 I was sued a while ago. For something that was not my fault, it was a, a person just doing a Hail Mary pass to get some dollars. Um, and uh, I can't go into the details of it, but uh, the lawyer said to me, well, you know, the, uh, if I were you, I'd recommend counter because it's the only way that um, the damages that were done to you might, you know, might get those. Um, and so you have to counter-sue them. Now, I and Shelley, we prayed about this, and we did not feel that that was consistent with the kingdom. In this particular case, I think it was the right thing. Um, I, I don't think I'm supposed to retaliate there. Having said that, I mean, so I, I would submit to God for wisdom on this. Don't just default to the culture that says, oh, you can you know, sue whoever, for whatever. But having said that, we all have to realize that we're in a weird, kind of a unique cultural situation where it's funky, where, where Sometimes in certain situations, like the insurance companies take it's like a business thing. This is just what they do. Insurance companies take over. And they, they have to protect their assets That's because they're a business. And so to do that, they have to sue the other person's insurance company. And there's all these, it gets really complicated like that. And I don't think that the kingdom is there to give us all the definitive answers on what to do in every particular situation. I would certainly default to saying that, that, uh, um, that all other things being equal, I wouldn't do that. Uh, because it is a kind of form of judgment, but on the other hand, sometimes it could just be a form of discernment. Like, like what's uh, discernment about what is true, what's real here. And if a person's lying, you're just saying, "No, here's what's true." And sometimes you might as well go to court to have that fleshed out. So I'm not giving you any kind of definitive answer here at all. <laughs> uh, I'll just say this: final word here. Whatever else happens, even if you think it's, it's okay to take another person to court because of the insurance companies or your business or whatever, blah, 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 blah. That should never be a grounds for you to ever um, not love them with the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, And and you can do the two consistently. Uh, Even in the court where these people are suing me, I had to make it a, a, a disciplined practice to be praying for them and ascribing unsurpassable worth to them, and uh, if, a, if there's a way that I can express that uh, by sacrificing for them, I want to do that. Uh, never should I contrast myself with them. Never should I think I'm better than them, superior to them. Yeah, there's, it's wrong to go after a person like they were doing to me just to get a buck. But I, my sin's much worse than that. There's a little dust particle, mine's a log. And so whether you're in court or not, um, uh, it, never let any circumstance take you out of that distinct kingdom kind of mindset and love. Uh, they, Jesus died for them whoever they are, whatever they've done, however wrong it is, whatever you've got to do, uh, know that Jesus died for them, they have unsurpassable worth, and your main job in life is to agree with God about that. All right. All right. Uh, Yes, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. Would you stand as I send us out? If you're not a kingdom person because you're not surrendered to him, do it this morning. Come up here and talk to these folks, and they would love to pray with you. Or if you have any other need whatsoever, come up here and, 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 and share it with them, and, and they would just love to invite God in on that situation. As we leave here, I pray we do it as a people who are leaving all judgment to God, who are aware of our, uh, the gossip columns in our brain, and who shut them down whenever we see them. To instead, just be blessing people in every way, shape, and form. Let's start out there in the gathering area. Love people. Don't just stay in your own little cliques. Go out and meet some people. Uh, Create a loving atmosphere here. Welcome people. Ascribe worth to them just because they're here. Tell them that you're glad they're here. Whatever. Uh, But as we're driving home and throughout the rest of the day and throughout the rest of the week, live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. And leave all judgment to God in Jesus' name. Go out and love the world. God bless you guys. Greetings, Kingdom Revolutionaries. Hope that um, you were blessed by the message uh, today and by the Q&A afterwards. As is all too common, I got long-winded so I didn't have time to get to a lot of the questions. So um, as I promised, I, I am going to address a few more questions here in this little addendum uh, that we uh, include sometimes with our messages. So there's three questions I want to quickly uh, touch on that we're uh, texted in. First, one person asked, why did God create sociopaths? And if sociopaths can't help it, how can they be morally responsible for their actions? This is actually a combination of two questions that came in. First thing I'd say is, I don't think God creates sociopaths. Um, The world creates sociopaths. Uh, We're in a fallen world, born in fallen conditions. Everything has been corrupted by the fall. Nothing works exactly the way it's supposed to operate. And um, the result of all this is that, I mean, we're all born in, screwed up in one way or another. Uh, some folks physically, some folks emotionally, all of us spiritually, and some unfortunate folks are sociopaths, whether they're born uh, that way for genetic reasons or whatever, or whether life uh, produces, uh, their life experience makes them this way. Um, we don't know, but, but um, it's different in different cases, but it's not God who does that. Uh, Only that which is consistent with the character of Christ is something we should attribute directly to God. Uh, Everything else that falls short of that is the result of, or at least has been influenced by, wills other than than God. Um, Having said that, the person asks, how can they be held morally morally responsible for their actions? And to the degree that a person's behavior is reflective of things that uh, they didn't choose, uh, to the extent that they are themselves victims, they're not responsible and this is why we, I always say that, that uh, we have to leave all judgment to God because only God can parse out uh, the degree to which a person is and is not responsible for, for their, their actions. Uh, socially, we have to take measures uh, to protect society uh, from folks, put people in prison and, and whatever. Uh, but God alone knows the extent to which a person is really responsible uh, for what they choose to do or to the degree to which they're just working out stuff that has been done to them. Alright, a second question is this, how can we deal with, this is a good one, uh, one that we all deal with uh, uh, in some form, how can we deal with difficult people, for example, mothers with no boundaries, (laughs) mother-in-laws with no boundaries, unkind co-workers, etc. How do we work with these difficult people without having a quote-unquote negative opinion about them? Now here, I want to recall this very important distinction, and I'll say more about this next week. Uh, but this distinction between judgment and discernment. It's the same word in Greek, krino. It means to separate. But uh, a discernment is where we separate things and distinguish things, whereas um, judgment is where we separate people, ourselves from other people, and put ourselves above them to feed off the contrast. The second kind of judgment is absolutely forbidden. The first one is, is required. We, we need to do this uh, all the time. We have to distinguish between things that are good and bad, true or false, helpful or harmful, and, and whatnot. So it's totally appropriate sometimes to have negative opinions uh, about what people do, uh, to say, this is inappropriate behavior, mother. You've got to honor our boundaries. These are our kids, not your kids, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and uh, that, that's, it's loving to do that. It's healthy to do that. It's, it's absolutely necessary, um, and we shouldn't feel bad about that. Now, having said that, we're never allowed to have uh, negative opinions about people as people. Uh, Look, God ascribes unsurpassable worth to us despite our behavior because our our essential worth to God isn't about our behavior. So also we're we're called and empowered to ascribe unsurpassable worth to others uh, despite their behavior because their essential worth isn't about their behavior. Their essential worth and our essential worth is defined on Calvary, where God says uh, we are worth God dying for. We have unsurpassable worth. And so even as we have to distinguish between beha- uh, good behavior and bad behavior and helpful and harmful behavior, and have to say that out loud and put boundaries in place and deal with difficult people, even as we do that, we have to be ascribing unsurpassable worth to them. Um, and um, and it, reflecting Paul's attitude when he says, I, I have decided to know nothing, other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians two 2.2 that, That's what defines the core worth of every human being. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we have to look at everybody through those lens. Then the final question is this. This is, this is also a really good one. If self-sacrificial love can only be downloaded by God to believers, as you say, how can we explain non-believers who demonstrate this kind of love? Gandhi, for example. Now, here's the thing. I... I said that only God can download his character into a person's life. I didn't say that that's exclusively for believers. Um, Acts 17 tells us that God is at work at all times and all places and all situations, uh, trying to get people to grope for him or seek him and possibly find him, Paul says, though he's not far from any of us. God is a God who loves every human being He's ever created, and is at work in every human being's heart to try to get them to seek Him, get a hunger for Him, and find Him. Insofar as their their particular situations in this world allow that to happen, um, and it's it's rare, but I think there are times where there are people who are open to God, to the degree that God is able to download his character to a significant degree in them, despite the fact that they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, for whatever reasons. And only God can judge the extent to which they don't know Jesus because uh, of circumstances outside of their control or because of a rebellious will or whatever, uh, that we leave that to God. But um, this isn't the exclusive claim of, of, of Christians. Um It's all the more impressive, actually, when you find someone like Gandhi who manifests Abba's character, despite the fact that he doesn't explicitly know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. But knowing who God is, as defined on the cross, when we look at the world and we see people who demonstrate that character, we can say that God is to that degree reigning in that life. And that's not to say anything about, you know, whether they're going to stand in the final judgment or anything like that. It's just noticing that that reflects the character of, of, of Abba Father. These people are, are receiving Abba's character and reflecting it in their lives. That's rare, but I think it does happen. At the same time, I'll end with this. Um, the New Testament reserves the, the, the concept of the kingdom of God only for that group that is manifesting Abba's character with the explicit acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the kingdom of God. And so I, I'm going to hesitate to say that Gandhi was manifesting the kingdom of God, even though I want to admit that he's reflecting God's character. Um, I, I think it's consistent with scripture to reserve the title kingdom of God for that group that is explicitly and consciously submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord, and therefore is, is manifesting his character. And with the, the burden on my heart is is that Um, While I'm impressed with folks like Gandhi who manifest God's character without explicitly acknowledging Jesus, Um, I'm concerned for those who do explicitly acknowledge Jesus and yet don't reflect Abba's character. That's what concerns me. And that's why I preach this message uh, passionately for the church to embrace this calling, uh, to manifest Christ-like, cross-like love uh, towards all people at all times and all situations. No ifs, ands, buts, exceptions, or anything. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. God bless you guys. Live in love as Christ loves you and gave his life for you. Take care.